Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 6. I'm actually going to begin at verse 11 and read through verse 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 through 20. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, uh, you will find these verses on page 1004. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 11. This is the very Word of God. And we desire, each one of you, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, as we come before you, we come before you humbly asking that you would indeed remember your promise that your word will not return to you void. Father, by your spirit, Open our ears and our hearts this morning to receive your word, to rest upon it, and to bring forth its fruit in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I want to begin this morning, actually in the last couple of verses of our previous passage, in verses 11 and 12. We saw last Sunday that that in these verses, the the author is uh, bringing to conclusion that that, that difficult passage which began at the end of of chapter 5, that that passage in which he, he warns those who have become sluggish to throw off their sluggishness and to go on to maturity. And he tells them that in order for that to happen, in order for them to to be rid of their sluggishness and for them to begin once again to to grow up in their salvation, they need to pursue and earnestly desire the full assurance of hope. Now the hope that he is referring to, as we we see it there in verse 12, the, the hope that he is referring to is the hope that all those who patiently endured in the faith will inherit the promises. That is, the hope that he has in mind is the hope that that all those who, who walk in the footsteps of faith will receive certainly and without doubt everything that God has promised. 
That God will do for them all that he has said he will do. That God will keep his word without exception, without qualification. That those who believe in Jesus Christ and those who rest upon him firm to the end will in the end receive eternal life with with all that that entails in the coming kingdom of God. From the beginning, since man rebelled against God, God has been at work to put right all that we put wrong, to make all things new, to who establish His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And He promises to those who look to Jesus Christ in faith that they will have eternal life in that kingdom. And the author of Hebrews wants those to whom He is writing And all those who will subsequently read this letter, including us this morning, he wants us to have a full assurance of that hope. And the first thing that I want us to see this morning is the reason that he thinks it's so important for us to have that full assurance. I think we can explain his reasoning by by pointing to sort of two interconnected, two two intertwined themes. First, the, the author thinks it is important for us to earnestly desire assurance because he knows that assurance can be hard to come by. And even once you have it, it can be hard to hold on to. Assurance is, is easy to lose and hard to get, and the author knows this. But not only does he know that that assurance is slippery, he also knows that it is vital. It is essential to the Christian life. One cannot live a life worthy of their calling without such assurance. So first, we we begin with this simple idea that, that assurance, especially in this life, assurance is hard to come by and hard to hold onto. You see, the author knows that, that in the present especially when that present is filled with with sufferings and and difficulties and troubles of various kinds, it is easy for us in our weakness to lose faith in God's promises. It's easy for us to, to begin to doubt. And when that happens, when we lose faith in God's promises, we instinctively begin to go looking for life Elsewhere, We look for something else to, to satisfy. We look for something else to secure. We look for something else to, to give us that life that we fear we might lose. That's what the author, that's what the Hebrews were, were doing. They were experiencing what the author later calls a hard struggle with suffering. In chapter 10, he he tells us that they had been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Some of them had had been thrown into prison and had even had their property plundered by the authorities. And all of this for his name. They They were suffering for the sake of the name of their Lord and Savior. But in the midst of all that suffering, maybe we should say because of all that suffering, they were beginning to waver. They were, they were beginning to, to doubt God's promises. They were beginning to doubt that they would ever actually 
receive all that God had promised. After all, if God could not deliver them from this in the present, why should they trust Him with their eternal futures? And as a result, as a result of their wavering, as a result of their doubt, they were beginning to doubt whether it was really worth it to keep following Jesus. Because they doubted the inheritance, they doubted that the present cost of following Jesus were really worth it. In the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul writes these famous words. He, he tells us that the, the worst sufferings that we can experience in this life are but slight and momentary when compared to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. It's not the way we normally think about our sufferings. We don't, we don't think of them as, as slight and momentary, but Paul could see it. Paul understood that the sufferings that we experience in this life, that they, they can do, they can last no more than a lifetime, and they can do no more than kill us. And therefore, they are slight and momentary when compared to the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared for us. That is our hope. And that is the hope that the Hebrews had lost. That is what the Hebrews no longer believed. Because they were no longer sure that they would ever receive the, the promised weight of glory. Their present suffering seemed to them anything but slight and momentary. And having lost their faith, having lost their hope, they had become sluggish. That's the second point here. Not only is hope hard to hold on to, but it's hard to live the Christian life without it. In fact, we might say it is impossible. The, the Hebrews had, had lost their hope, and therefore they had lost their zeal for obedience. Discipleship seemed to them more a burden than a blessing. And they were being strongly tempted to renounce their repentance. Some of them had, had even already done so. They were being tempted to, to turn away from God and to go find a better life somewhere else. I suspect you've been there. At least for a moment, maybe for, for more than a moment. Maybe some of you have been there even this week, even this morning, wondering whether it is really worth it. Wondering whether the, the costs are truly worth paying. And when you end up at that point, when, when your present suffering seemed far greater than the hope that you have, it's so easy for us to become sluggish in the Christian life. It's so easy for us to, to simply stop moving after Christ. And that's the thing that we need to see in these verses. The thing that we need to, to grasp this morning. We, we need to understand that, that we must earnestly pursue the full assurance of our hope because it is our hope in Christ that fuels the Christian life. Hope is the fuel of obedience. When assurance fades, obedience flags. 
Now, I know that some think it's the other way around. There are, are many today who are reticent to, to give us full assurance of hope because they fear that such assurance will, will necessarily produce laziness. If a person is assured of his salvation, then, then he will lose his motivation to obey. If he's, if he's sure that his salvation is secure, then, then he will simply go off and, and do what he wants in this life, knowing that he doesn't have to worry about it. But such thinking fundamentally misunderstands the nature of obedience. It, it misunderstands what it is that we are being called to. Because if you think that assurance will produce laziness, then, then you are thinking of obedience as some heavy, un, uncomfortable burden that we must bear in order to earn, or at least hold on to, our salvation. It fails to see that, that obedience is actually the essence of the new life to which we have been saved. Obedience is what we are being saved to, not what we are being saved by. Think about it this way. Obedience is simply life conformed to God's blueprint for human flourishing. When we walk in obedience, we are simply walking in the path that God says brings blessing and life. The law is not a burden that God gives us to bear, but a gift. It is, it, is his, it is His picture, His design for the way that life is supposed to be. It is walking in obedience to the law that we, we get a foretaste of heaven, that we get a, a foretaste of what life is supposed to be like. It shows us the, the design of, of how life is supposed to be lived. It is the design of true and lasting shalom. It is a picture of what life looks like in God's rest. We don't obey in order to earn that life, but rather to experience it, in order to enter into it. And when you begin to see obedience as, as the means by which we enter into the life to which we have been saved, you begin to understand why assurance of salvation actually fuels obedience in this life. Think of what John says in his first letter. He says, everyone who has this hope purifies himself now. If you know that what you are being saved to, that the good life is a life of obedience to your Lord, a, a life in submission to His will, then you will want as much of that submission as you can get now. Yes, you are hindered and, and hampered by your own sin and by the, the world around you and by the schemes of the devil who is, who is constantly plotting against you. And in this life, we will continue to stumble and fall short. But we will want as much of that obedience as we can get because we know that that obedience is God's shalom. That obedience is God's rest. It is the good life. And so when we have an assurance that that is ours, think of what it sets us free from. When we have an assurance that, that, that God has called us into His rest, that He has called us into His peace, then we are set free from, from what today is called the fear of missing out. I said in Sunday school last week that that was a new term for me. They were, they were talking about FOMO on the radio, and I was like, what in the world are they, are they referencing? And it is the, the fear of missing out. Well, you may have never heard that term before, but you have had that feeling it's why sin is alluring. It's, it's why it is tempting, because it offers us something that we fear we might be missing. 
We think that there is some good that we are being denied. We, we feel that, that we are having to, to make a sacrifice of, of something that would really bring us contentment and, and happiness and security. But God says, no, those things, why they provide a fleeting pleasure, ultimately they lead only to death. That the good life is the life that I am calling you into the life that is assuredly yours in Christ. We're free. We're free from that, that fear of, of missing out, that, that fear that, that somehow sin might offer something better because we have a full assurance that the best life, the, the life that God created us for is ours in Christ. But not only does it set us free from this fear of, of missing out, it also sets us free from a, a fear of failure. You see, it is, it is possible that you might conceive of the, of the life that God is calling you to as the good life. You, you might have, have, have drunk deeply of the cup of sin and you might have, have come to know firsthand that, that, that sin is bitter. You might have tasted its wormwood and its gall. You, you, you might have felt its pain. You might know the destruction and the death that it brings into your life. And you might wish that you could have the life that God designed, but believe that it's just impossible. Believe that it is beyond your capacity. Maybe you even tried more times than you care to count to, to put your sin to death. And you are now firmly convinced that you are never going to get there. You are now firmly convinced that, that that simply isn't in the cards for you. There is simply no way that you will ever have that life. But again, such thinking misunderstands the gospel. You see, the life of obedience, the, the life of, of blessing, the life of peace is what Jesus brings to us. It's part of the blessing that is ours. He doesn't just forgive us for our sins and give us a clean slate, a second chance to, to try to get the life that we missed out on the first time. If the gospel was simply a second chance or a third chance or a hundredth chance or a thousandth chance, it would do us no good because we would continue and perpetually fall short. It is not in us to live this life. In Adam, there is no health in us. But we are not in Adam. We are in Christ. We are in the, the living Lord and Savior. We are in Him who has life in Himself and is able to give it to us. And so there is no fear of failure. We fall short here and now, but we get up and we press on knowing that He is with us. He is leading us. He is strengthening us. And He will not fail to bring to completion the good work that He has begun in us. That assurance doesn't make you lazy. It gives you hope to, to press on again today. It gives you hope to make again today the same resolutions you made yesterday. I can't tell you how often I, I make the same resolutions again and again and again. And if I made those resolutions hoping only in my own ability to keep them, I would have given up long ago. That's why most of us have given up on New Year's resolutions. Because we never keep them. But these resolutions are different. 
These resolutions are not made in our own strength. These resolutions are made in the confidence that he will not fail. He will not fail to bring us to where he has called us to be. He will not fail to do the good work that he has begun all the way to completion. That is our assurance. That is the assurance that fuels the Christian life. That is the hope that causes us to, pure our thought, to purify ourselves here and now. And so the question before us this morning, that's a long introduction, that's a long conclusion to last week's Sunday sermon. You know, that's a long introduction to say, so, so if that's the hope, if that's what assurance does, how do we get it? How do we, how do we grow in this assurance? How do, we, how do we obtain this assurance that the author so desperately wants us to have, that he, that he wants us to be earnest to pursue? And I want to suggest to you that that's exactly what he is doing right here in verses 13 through 20. You see, he knows that, that this assurance is going to be hard to come by and it's going to be hard to hold on to. And so we need an anchor. Not only something that we can hold on to, but something that will hold fast to us. And so what is that anchor? What is that anchor that will set us free to pursue costly obedience? What is that anchor that will set us free to pursue the, the costly obedience of loving our spouses as we have been called to love them? What is, the, what is the anchor that will set us free to truly be parents to our children, to, to truly do the hard work of raising them in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord? What is the, what is the anchor that's going to hold us fast that we might do our work as unto the Lord, even when we don't enjoy it that much, even when it's unappreciated, even when the work environment that we've been called into is far less than ideal? What is that anchor that's going to hold us and, and set us free to, to truly put the interest of our neighbors ahead of our own, to choose them before ourselves? What is that anchor that's going to set us free to, to defend the oppressed and the, the marginalized? What is that anchor that's going to set us free to, to renounce the passions of our flesh when they seem so strong, and what we desire seems so good. As I said, there is no obedience that isn't costly. What is it that's going to set us free to pursue that obedience? What is going to give us the assurance that we can stand firm in the footsteps of faith? What the author points us to is Abraham. He points us to, to Abraham. Look what he says in verses 13 through 15. Having just called them to be, to be earnest, to have the same full assurance, he, he points them to Abraham saying, When God made a promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Why does he point them to, to Abraham? Well, we have to remember who Abraham is. Abraham is the father of the faithful. We are in Christ today, and as 
Christians, as those who are in Christ, we are the children of Abraham. We are the heirs of the promise that he, he talks about a little bit later in this. You see, God's will from the very beginning of man's rebellion was to reestablish his kingdom on earth. And he chose Abraham, a, a man from Ur, a man from Babylon. He chose Abraham to be the one through whom he would establish his kingdom on earth. And he promised him, you will have children, and those children will multiply. They will become as numerous as the, the stars of heaven and the sands on the seashore. And I will make them into a great nation. I will make them into my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I will bless them. And they will be blessed. They will know my shalom. They will live in my peace. They will have my rest. That was the promise made to to Abraham, and that is the promise that we have now inherited and that we have even begun to receive in Christ with the Spirit as our guarantee that we will one day receive it in full. And so God's, uh, the author points us back to God's dealing with Abraham. He says, remember how this all got started. When God first made that promise, he made it with an oath. God Swore by himself because there was no one greater by whom he might swear. Now why is, why is God's oath so significant? Why is it so significant to see that, that God made his promise with an oath? Well, he, he develops this picture further in verses 16 and following. Notice what he says. He says, people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Now if you're like me, your mind immediately goes to the exceptions. Well, I know that people have lied under oath. Oaths are no guarantee that, that a promise is, is true. Obviously, the author knows that it is possible for, for a person to, to perjure himself. He's, he's not suggesting that an oath is an infallible guarantee that a person is, is telling the truth. His point is this, that in, that in human relationships, an oath is the highest the heaviest, the, the most serious confirmation that a person can give. It's, it's, kids even know this. They, they do it on the playground. They, they swear oaths. They, they, they cross their hearts and they stick needles in their eye to, to, to guarantee their, their comrade that they are telling the truth. They know that an oath is the strongest guarantee that a person can give. Now, because people are fallible, a human oath is still fallible. But notice what's going on. An oath is for the sake of the one receiving the testimony. It is a confirmation to them. Jesus tells us plainly in the Gospels that a person's moral obligation to tell the truth is in no way altered by an oath. Your yes should always be yes and your no should always be no. You must not fall into the trap of thinking that you are only required to tell the truth when you have crossed your heart and hope to die. Now, that's not the way that this works. We are always required to tell the truth. But when the other person, whether that be an official judge in a courtroom or whether that simply be your neighbor, when the other person needs assurance, when the other person needs confirmation, we may take an oath. We may take an oath for their sake, not for ours. We may take an oath to, to assure them. Incidentally, that's why, as, as Christians, we don't believe that it's necessary for us to conscientiously object to being sworn in in a courtroom. Some do, and, and I can appreciate that, but it's, it's not necessary. 
Paul let himself be placed under oath. God himself here takes an oath. We may take oaths not to bind ourselves, but to assure the one to whom the testimony is given. And that's why God's oath is such a big deal. God doesn't need an oath to tell the truth. Notice what the author says. It is impossible for God to lie. And based upon that, it ought to have been enough for us simply that God spoke the promise. His word was sufficient. But in a condescension to our weakness, God allows his promise to be guaranteed not by one, but by two unshakable truths. His word and his oath. God took an oath, it says, in order to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose. That oath was for us, the heirs of the promise. That oath was for our benefit. It was a concession to our weakness. And because God has sworn by himself, because there was no one greater by whom he could swear, that promise ought to be received, assured, and steadfast. This is what God has said he will do, and he will do it, for he is faithful. It's what Abraham himself experienced. Notice that's the second thing we, we see in those first few verses there. Not only did, did God swear by himself, but also, verse 15, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, notice, it took some patient waiting. Abraham did not receive the, the promise right away. There were some 25 years between when Abraham was, was called and given the promise that he would have a child and the birth of Isaac. 25 years is a long time. He waited a, a long time. But I wonder here if, if the birth of Isaac is all that the author has in mind when he says that he obtained the promise. Because if you think about it, Isaac was but a down payment. He wasn't children like the sands of the seashore. His, his family wasn't yet a great nation. They didn't yet own the land. In fact, when Abraham dies, the only land he owns is the burial plot that his wife is in, his wife's body is in. So what does it mean to say that he obtained the promise? Well, I wonder if the author here is, is thinking of the words of Jesus spoken to the Sadducees. The Sadducees were those in the first century who, who did not believe in the resurrection. And in fact, they mocked Jesus for believing and teaching the resurrection. And do you remember what Jesus said to them? Jesus came to them and said, You don't know the Scriptures. Not only do you not know the power of God, but you don't know the, the Scriptures. For the Scriptures say that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not was, but is, presently. He, he is the God. And God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so if God is the God of Abraham, and if God is the God of the living, then Abraham is living. 
Abraham, even now, separated from his body, but yet still alive in the presence of the Lord, he has seen the fulfillment of the promises. For he has seen Christ. He knows, just as we know today, how the story plays out. He knows that that Christ has come as the fulfillment of all that God promised to do for him. He knows that, that Christ is the seed through whom the kingdom will be established, through whom the kingdom will come. He knows that that Christ is the one who has entered behind the curtain. That that sacred ground that the high priest was only able to enter once a year. Jesus has entered there not to to offer a a sacrifice that that falls short of, of what it needs to be, but to offer even himself as the once for all sacrifice for our sins. Such that when he died, offering up that sacrifice, the curtain was torn. And the way was open. Because no further sacrifice was required. Abraham has seen all this. He knows what has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. And we have seen it also. We know that the one has come. We still wait for the full consummation of all that is going to be done but we know that Jesus will not fail to bring to completion the good work that he has begun. And so we, in Christ, have obtained the promise, receiving the Spirit as the down payment of the inheritance that is now guaranteed to us by his precious blood. And because this is true, because we have seen what has been promised, because we have obtained all that is ours, every spiritual blessing in Christ, now ours through faith. Because of this, we can have that full assurance. You see, if we look to our experience, if we look to our experience in this world, it will be easy for us to to begin to to doubt. It will be easy for us to begin to wonder But Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 to look to Christ. For he says, If God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Christ is our anchor. Christ is our hope. Let us cling to Him For in Him, we have the full assurance of hope. And so when you feel your hope beginning to flag, when you feel your assurance beginning to waver, look again to your Savior. For He is not only the author, but He is the perfecter of your faith. In Him, assurance is to be found. And in that assurance, you have the fuel you need to live the life that you have been called to live even today. So let us make it our ambition each day, every day, to look to him, to set our minds on him, to consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because it is with our eyes set on him that we will be able to run the race that has been set before us. And because he is the anchor for our souls, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Amen. Let us believe it together.
Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness. And we thank You for Your grace. We thank You for Jesus Christ who went as a forerunner for us behind the curtain that He might open the way for us now to come into Your presence. Help us to know and believe that in Him every spiritual blessing is ours. Help us to know that in Him we have been given life and good life, the good life, eternal life in Your kingdom. Father God, give us the grace to believe this and give us the grace to walk in the footsteps of this faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.